back in June in Warren, Michigan, the state's Republican candidates for governor showed up for a debate. And this debate, it felt raucous from the start. I was, I was serving the citizens of this state when these guys were in diapers. Okay. All right? In fact, it felt like it was engineered to be raucous. I got to say something real quick. This is what everybody came here to see tonight, and this is what we need. So thank you, guys. Let's keep it up. All right. <laughs> Patty, new topic. Anyway, about halfway through, the moderators pivoted. They started asking the candidates about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, in its uh, abortion ruling, at least one justice indicated that the Supreme Court may be open to reviewing other precedent and possibly undoing laws that allow same-sex marriages, uh, making sodomy illegal. Do you think that's judicial overreach, and how do you stand on those positions? They need to revisit revisit it all, and that's one thing as Christians. Specifically on those issues. Let's, let's get to the persecution of Christians right now because of what we stand for. One by one, each of these candidates began to express far-right views. And we have, uh, as was mentioned, Article 1, Section 25 of our Constitution, Michigan Constitution, says that for the betterment of society, marriage is between a man and a woman. I draw the line where God does, and that's where I stand. Kevin, real quick. I'm just happy to say my partner is my wife. <laughs> All right. All right. New topic, Patty. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on I called up Mark Joseph Stern because I wanted to chew over this moment with someone. Mark covers the Supreme Court for Slate. He's watched over the past few weeks as the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has spawned all of these other fights about whose civil rights count. I think there's a sense of, well, what's happening next? Because we've won this once in a generation, once in a century victory, um, but we've got to keep the momentum going. To be clear, the people who want to keep the momentum going here are the most conservative Republicans. And so they're projecting ahead to these other issues, especially LGBTQ issues, where they feel they could win another victory at the Supreme Court and roll back precedents that enrage a lot of the GOP base. But there's a problem with this tactic, because while taking a stand against gay marriage and other LGBTQ issues looks like an opportunity for Republicans at the local level, Mark says things look pretty different for lawmakers in Washington. You know, on the whole, the party is still anti-LGBTQ. I don't want to sugarcoat that. But clearly, there's just this increasing divide within the party on these issues where Republicans know they are clearly losing. And this week, Democrats are trying to make their Republican colleagues feel this pain. They've introduced a bill protecting gay marriage at the federal level. They're calling it the Respect for Marriage Act. And they are basically daring Republicans not to vote for it. If I were in Congress, the words LGBTQ would be frightening because I would know that 70 plus percent of Americans support same-sex marriage and that there is pretty strong support for civil rights protections for LGBTQ people. And I would see this as a wedge issue in which my party was losing and that I would be in in a difficult position. Hmm. It's interesting, you mentioned how gay marriage is becoming this kind of wedge issue for Republicans. 
And I'm so used to wedge issues being used by Republicans against Democrats, like whether you're talking about, I don't know, abortion, immigration, all sorts of things. Is is this <laughs> is there an opportunity here essentially for Democrats? Like, is that how to look at this? I am always hesitant to look at human rights as an opportunity for either political party. But I will say, I do think that this could be a wedge issue for Democrats. It's one on which they win. They can really pin Republicans down and force them to take a position that might be extremely unpopular to most of the electorate. But at the same time, I I just want to hammer home that like it plays so differently depending on who your audience is. And a bunch of primary voters in in Michigan are going to be so different from general election voters in another state that it's hard to say that this always benefits or burdens one party or the other. Today on the show... With the Respect for Marriage Act hurtling towards a vote in the Senate, how did this happen? And would this bill really protect the people who need it most? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. To wrap your head around why the Respect for Marriage Act is such a big deal, it helps to remember how far gay rights have come and how fast. After all, it was not that long ago that Congress was passing the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA. DOMA made sure gay people who got married would not enjoy the benefits of a legal union, at least not at the federal level. It passed back in 1996, after the state of Hawaii seemed to clear the way for same-sex weddings to begin. Walking down the aisle, why Hawaii is wed to the idea of gay and lesbian marriage. And this sets off a huge panic across the political spectrum, Democrats and Republicans, both very anti-gay at the time. And uh, they feared two things. First, they feared that if same-sex couples could get married in Hawaii, that those marriages would be recognized at the federal level. Can you imagine such horror? And then they also worried that every other state would have to recognize those marriages. So same-sex couples would just start going to Hawaii, it would become a marriage mill, then they'd go back to their home states and, you know, be formally married. And so Congress responded with DOMA in 96 by both banning federal recognition of same-sex marriages and also expressly telling every state you do not have to recognize a same-sex marriage licensed elsewhere, even if they were married under state law. Because there are more than a thousand rights and privileges under federal law that are afforded to couples who are married. Um, Just by dint of having a marriage license, you get all kinds of benefits on taxes. When you have children, the list goes on. And because of this federal ban, Couples who could get married in states like Massachusetts starting in 04 were still legal strangers in the eyes of federal law. And they couldn't be like common law married? No, because the federal government does not recognize common law marriage either. And so you have a real roadblock to true equality during these years, because even as more and more states are trying to grant um, equal recognition to same-sex couples, you have the federal government saying no. And it wasn't just Republicans who were quashing gay marriage. Bill Clinton signed DOMA into law. When Barack Obama first ran for president, he said he was opposed to same-sex marriage. 
It was just a decade ago when the ground really seemed to shift. Let's rewind to, what, July of 2012. Obama had come out in favor of marriage equality two months earlier, right? Just after North Carolina had voted to ban same-sex marriage under state law. He was, we should remember, basically forced to do it by his vice president, Joe Biden, who went on TV and went off scripts a few days earlier and admitted that he was perfectly comfortable with same-sex marriage and thought it should be legal. Men marrying men, women marrying women, and heterosexual men and women marrying men are entitled to the same exact rights, all the civil rights, all the civil liberties. And quite frankly, I don't see much of a distinction uh, beyond that. Then we have the 2012 election. Obama is the pro-gay candidate. Mitt Romney is the anti-gay candidate. Marriage is a relationship between one man and one woman. You know, when Massachusetts legalized same-sex marriage through the courts, Romney fought really hard to prevent couples from getting married. So there was a pretty clear-cut choice. Obama wins that election. The next year, the Supreme Court strikes down the federal ban on same-sex marriage. Two years later, it strikes down state bans. A lot of breaking news here this morning. The breaking uh, story just moments ago, the Supreme Court and this landmark ruling, the court uh, making same-sex legal, same-sex marriage legal in this country across every state in this nation. Going into today, 37 states. And so in the span of just three years, you've gone from the Democratic standard bearer not openly supporting same-sex marriage to the Supreme Court ensuring that gay couples can get married in all 50 states. And that is such a rapid change and such a compressed timeline that it's no surprise to me we're still dealing with the aftershocks a decade later. Hmm. So 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, it's still on the books right now, right? It's just ineffective because of the Supreme Court? Yeah. So, you know, the Supreme Court can strike down laws, but it can't erase them from the books. This is something that we have all learned in the post-Roe era, because there were many abortion bans that were passed before the Supreme Court issued Roe v. Wade that are still on the books that sprung back into effect when the Supreme Court overturned Roe. And the same thing is true of DOMA, this federal ban. It was sort of suspended by the Supreme Court in 2013. It's inoperative. It can't be legally enforced. But if today's Supreme Court overruled that decision, then it would suddenly spring back into life. And many people's marriages, including my own, would be null and void in the eyes of the federal government. Yeah, it's like the abortion decision from this year was a canary in the coal mine situation. Like, hey, the Supreme Court can do this. And given the fact that one of the justices, Clarence Thomas, had this concurrence where he suggested, let's reconsider some rights under the 14th Amendment, they just might. Yeah, uh, I, I would put the odds even higher than just might. Can you describe the reaction when the Supreme Court ruling this year came out? Like, how quickly did the gears begin to turn where folks thought, oh, hold on, all of these rights are connected? So this is a ruling about abortion, but, you know, contraception may be implicated, gay marriage may be implicated. So I think it happened really quickly for for two related reasons. I mean, first is just if you read 
the opinion that the Supreme Court handed down in the abortion case, it says very clearly that rights were frozen in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified, and that if a right was not deeply rooted in 1868, then the Supreme Court has no business protecting it under the Constitution. 1868 was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, and it was all men. It was all white men, specifically. It was all rich white men, many of whom legally owned their wives under the doctrine of coverture. They basically were the master of their homes. They were not thinking clearly or carefully about things like reproductive autonomy, let alone um, the sexual freedom of LGBTQ people. It was a really long time ago. And so I think anyone with half a brain can hear that rule and think, wait a minute, what was going on in 1868? Not a lot of good stuff. That probably means that this is about more than just abortion. And that leads to, I think, the second big reason why this hit so quickly, which is that it was almost like the main thrust of the dissent in that case. Obviously, the the three liberal justices talked a lot about abortion and why Roe was correctly decided, but they spilled a ton of ink about how this decision imperils many other rights, that you cannot just take one block out of the Jenga tower and not expect the whole thing to fall down. That is the actual analogy that the justices used in their dissent. Well, the interesting thing is, I mean, conservative activists were reading these opinions too. And it was in the same way that progressives saw this and thought, oh my gosh, the house is on fire. Conservatives saw it and thought, hells yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Time to bring some cases. I would say there was like a split reaction. You have some politically savvy conservatives trying to take the line that Alito takes in the majority, which is to say, oh, this doesn't affect any other rights. It's only about abortion. You know, don't think too hard about what it means to freeze all constitutional liberties in 1868. This is just about Roe. Um, and, and I think that some conservatives embrace that because they feared the unknown. Like, what happens if the entire country suddenly realizes that every decision ever is up for grabs, that things like marriage equality and sodomy laws and contraception, that all of those are suddenly up for grabs at the Supreme Court. But then on the other side, the very activisty side, the the folks who make a living out of bringing these cases to the courts um, and, and, you know, drawing a lot of publicity to them and fundraising dollars, they were like, hells yeah, let's do this. Like, we've got one down, so many to go, time to go after marriage equality. After the break, how this law moving through Congress could codify rights for queer couples and protect against the Supreme Court taking those rights away. So let's talk about what's happening now in Congress. Democrats are seeing this conservative energy, and they're basically passing a whole bunch of bills to try to deal with the fact that rights may be imperiled. You know, there was a bill passed on July 15th protecting abortion rights. July 19th, it's called the Respect for Marriage Act, looking to codify gay marriage, and then also looking to preserve rights to contraception. So really just trying to put a lot of paper out there. These bills, do they stand a chance of passing in the Senate? 
Only one of them does, and that is the Respect for Marriage Act, the RFMA, which would repeal the federal ban in DOMA, so actually wipe it off the books, something that the Supreme Court can't do, um, and then also require every state to recognize same-sex marriages that were performed lawfully. So, yeah, I think that bill really does stand a chance of passing in the Senate, As we're speaking right now, there are already five Senate Republicans who've indicated that they will support it. And what's fascinating is that Mitch McConnell is not opposing it openly. He's not whipping votes against it. He seems to view it as a kind of conscience vote, which was how Republicans in the House decided to approach it. And that led to nearly 50 House Republicans supporting it. So I think that bill really could pass. I think all the others are dead on arrival. Can we talk about exactly what's in this bill? Because I understand you've had a chance to look at some of the language and really think about what the impact could be. Yes, I would love to, because much, if not most, of the uh, media coverage of this bill has been confusing or downright incorrect. It is, I think, a really good bill, but it does not do what a lot of reports have claimed that it does. Huh. How so? So, first of all, it's been framed primarily as a bill to repeal DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, that federal ban that was passed in 96, that the Supreme Court invalidated in, in 2013. And it's true. The bill does repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, and that's a great thing. But it does so much more than that. It also has this crucial provision that uses Congress's power under the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution to mandate that every single state recognize a marriage license that was granted to a couple without regard to sex or race or ethnicity or national origin and to fully acknowledge and respect the rights that are created and protected by that license. So if I get married in Massachusetts to a woman, but then I move to Mississippi, where maybe they might not want to respect that marriage at some point in the near future, I'm protected? Exactly right. And even better, there is this language that protects rights arising from marriage, which include, in every state, the right to legal parentage. And so it's not only your marriage license that's protected in Mississippi, if you move there from Massachusetts, it's your rights to claim parentage over your children, any children that uh, are produced in your, in your marital union. And that is really important language because we've seen a lot of states after Obergefell, try to roll back marriage equality by denying full and equal parenting rights to same-sex couples. So the bill is, I think, about as far as Congress could conceivably go under this Supreme Court in requiring that every state respect same-sex marriages, even if it stops short of requiring states to actually grant and license same-sex marriages. Are you surprised that this bill seems likely to pass? Yes. I am extremely surprised. It takes a lot to surprise you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty cynical person, I would say. You know, I, I generally don't expect much from the Republican Party. But, you know, currently... Republican senators tend to be more moderate than their state-level counterparts, and they also tend to be politically savvier about what is good for the party in the long run and at a federal level. And so you can see them squirming. Um, Our colleague Jeremy Stahl wrote a great piece just documenting all of the uh, terribly inconclusive and 
fretful reactions among Republican senators who were cornered about this bill because it ain't 2012 anymore, baby. You can't come out and be like, no, queers shouldn't be able to, you know, destroy the institution of marriage with their sodomy. You have to either come up with some kind of uh, better sounding argle bargle if you're a, a Republican in Congress, or you just have to jump onto the train and say, okay, you know, clearly we're all heading to the same station, whether we like it or not. I mean, a lot of them are doing this, oh, I haven't read it, like, I don't know her kind of reaction. Uh-huh, but then you have, like, uh-huh. Marco Rubio being like, I think gay people are worried about gas prices, not marriage. <laughs> yeah. Or Representative Nancy Mace saying if gay people want to be as happily or unhappily married as straight people, more power to them, which is just like. <laughs> I love that reaction. It was a good one. Yeah, I would also note that Elise Stefanik, who is the number three Republican in the House, who is a huge Trump supporter, who has been relentlessly attacking the January 6th committee and Liz Cheney. She voted for this bill, protecting same-sex marriage at the federal level and repealing DOMA. The politics of this issue are scrambled in a really interesting way. And to your earlier point, we just don't know how long that will last. And that's why, or at least one of the reasons why, Democrats are trying to strike now. Hmm. You have... Raise this other point, though, that it's not like passing this bill won't come with a cost for Democrats. And Democrats seem to know that. Can you explain? Absolutely. So even when it looked like this bill was going to pass, we saw Chuck Schumer, majority leader of the Senate, put out some pretty lukewarm language about it not being a top priority at the moment. And I think the reason why is because debating and passing this bill is going to eat up a lot of floor time in the Senate. And that is floor time that will not be spent advancing parts of Democrats' agenda, including, most importantly, judicial confirmations. As our own magazine, Slate.com, has explained in recent weeks, Democrats in the Senate have fallen really far behind on judicial confirmations. There are a ton of nominees who are awaiting a vote in the Senate who just haven't gotten one, and Republicans are going to use every tool at their disposal to try to push back those votes because they think they're going to win back the Senate in November and never let Democrats confirm another judge under Joe Biden. So when we saw Republicans saying stuff like, oh, I just haven't read this bill, you know, I don't know, it's not a priority for me, and it was kind of funny or silly, was it also kind of a political tactic? Like just keep this at arm's length because we have, you know, T minus five days till we all go on recess. Yes, absolutely. It, it was it was a purely political tactic from my standpoint. The bill is so short. It's a couple of pages. A non-lawyer could easily read it and grasp it. And you can explain it in a single sentence. Some reporters will do that when they confront Republicans about it. And Republicans still say, oh, no comment. I think it's very clear that they want to use this as a kind of delay tactic to eat up all this time before the recess and ensure that senators go on vacation having not confirmed a bunch of Biden's most important judges. It kind of makes me wonder, like, you're someone who cares a lot about the efficiency of getting judges through the Senate and approved. You're someone who cares a lot about other stuff that needs to go through quickly, like there's this election reform bill that it seems like has a real chance of passing. And so I'm I'm wondering if you look at the Respect for Marriage Act and you think this is a good bill, 
but you're worried about the political price Democrats will pay for passing it. Yes, I am. But at the same time, I am terrified of the Supreme Court. I do not trust Brett Kavanaugh's promise that this is only about abortion. I certainly don't trust Alito's promise that this this decision won't affect any other rights. And I think that it is reasonable to prioritize this kind of legislative action when there are millions of people who live in red states who wake up every day wondering if their government is going to recognize that their child is their own kid the next day. This feels like a very legitimate priority for Democrats at any moment in history, and especially this one. Because DOMA, this federal ban, it is really a stain on our country and on our laws. It is a bigoted law. That's what the Supreme Court said when it struck it down. It's based on homophobia and hatred. It needs to go. And if that requires the Senate to sacrifice some judicial confirmations, I think that that is a price worth paying. Can the Supreme Court, like, (laughs) come out of nowhere and kill this bill, even if it passes? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) they are a check on government. So the Supreme Court can do anything at once, right? With five votes, it can just do anything. And I have been very pessimistic about the odds of a lot of Democrats' legislation surviving the Supreme Court, including its climate legislation, um, including its abortion legislation, and potentially even the contraception bill. But this piece of legislation, uh, the Respect for Marriage Act, I think it is as ironclad as they come. Because it does something very clever, which is work around the Supreme Court's Um, irritating jurisprudence about state sovereignty and states' rights by stopping short of telling states that they have to license same-sex marriages. I think that would be really perilous for Congress to do, to try to tell states you must license same-sex marriages. So what it does is like, we're not going to have any more of those clerks being like, I don't approve of this. I'm not going to approve of this marriage because The bill doesn't make you approve of the marriage. It just makes you respect an out-of-state marriage. Exactly, exactly right. It makes you respect an out-of-state marriage. And that, again, draws on the Constitution's full faith and credit clause, which Congress doesn't draw on too often. But it's a pretty important source of power that basically says if the federal government wants to tell every state that it has to recognize and respect some kind of document or civil judgment or record, including a marriage license, then it gets to do it. It gets to tell Arkansas, sorry, bub, but you have to recognize this marriage from California. That is a really powerful thing. And again, it's not a real gray area in the law. I think even a lot of conservative law professors would acknowledge that this is something Congress can do. So take that, Clarence Thomas. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Mark Joseph Stern, thank you so much for straightening all this out with me. I'm really grateful. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Mary. Mark Joseph Stern is a senior writer covering courts and the law for Slate. If you are a fan of What Next, the best way to support us is to put a little something in the tip jar. And that tip jar is Slate Plus. By signing up, you tell our bosses you really do like what we're doing. And then you'll get access to ad-free Slate podcasts and, of course, everything else Slate.com has to offer. So go on over to Slate.com slash whatnextplus 
and sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Rubinova, Anna Phillips, and Jared Downing. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. I will be back in this feed bright and early tomorrow. Catch you then.